Today on Regionally Speaking, the month of November recognized National Family Caregivers Month as well as National Alzheimer's and Dementia Month. So we wanted to spend some time focused on caregiving. We're speaking with Julie Collins, Indiana Program Manager with the Alzheimer's Association. The 2023 Indiana Legislative Session is just around the corner. Indiana Youth Institute President and CEO Tammy Silverman shares some of the issues she hopes will be addressed. But up first, some of the brightest and most talented young people from across Indiana are moving from the Hoosier State in search of new opportunities. But it's not just the job market that keeps graduates from staying in the state. Some reports share that public policy plays a role as well. So we're speaking with Chris Chung, a millennial and a former Northwest Indiana legislator, to get his take. All of that and more on this edition of Regionally Speaking after the news. And welcome back to Regionally Speaking. He's Tom Maloney and I'm Dee Dodson. How many are familiar with the term brain drain? It sounds scary and in some respect a bit intimidating. Brain drain is simply the export of highly trained and skilled people to other parts of the country or oftentimes other parts of the globe. But what are the effects of brain drain on the state of Indiana and Northwest Indiana in particular? There are a number of studies on brain drain, and they all summarize the same thing. Employers in Indiana are finding it increasingly difficult to recruit and retain the workers they need. And while Indiana has more than 50 education and training initiatives designed to deal with this issue, there is no one-stop shop for employers to find potential hires. The Indiana Chamber of Commerce recently released a report called Indiana's Leaking Talent Pipeline. The report determined that the Hoosier State needs to, quote, lift up the educational attainment and workforce's skills of its citizenry, end quote. So we wanted to talk to a millennial to get their thoughts on brain drain on Indiana. Joining us today is Chris Chung, the senior campaign manager for the State House to White House initiative at the Center for American Progress. As a member of the Indiana House of Representatives, Chris served on the committees for Veterans Affairs and Public Safety, Roads and Transportation, and Financial Institutions, and he was a ranking minority member of the Local Government Committee. Chris holds a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering from Columbia University. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you so much for having me, Dee. Chris, so you're here with us today to talk about brain drain. But before we take a deep dive into that topic, take a moment to tell our listening audience about yourself, about your connection to the region, as well as your work as an elected official representing Northwest Indiana. I was born and raised in Northwest Indiana, and I'm really proud to be from the region, Dee. It's important to me, uh, an issue as, as brain drain, uh, because I'm one of those folks who uh, through my life, having gone to Munster High School, graduated, and then went to college far away from home in New York City, found jobs in big cities outside of Indiana, uh, and I'm currently based in Washington, D.C., to that effect. Uh, that's something that we don't want to see that happening anymore with our best and brightest. It's a huge problem when the smartest and brightest people from our uh, top-performing high schools in the region find jobs elsewhere and decide to raise their families, start businesses, and buy homes in places other than Northwest Indiana. And as the Chamber of Commerce is saying for the state, it hurts our competitive edge as a state when we don't invest in education, when we don't invest in a public school education that's strong for everybody, and when we don't invest in workforce development for people, whether that's going to college or whether that's doing an apprenticeship with the union or whether that's doing some entrepreneurship and starting your own business. Uh, that's something that is really near and dear to me. And I, I guess it's a little bit of the pot calling the kettle black because I'm one of those folks who left to D.C., but I would certainly welcome any opportunity to support the region. It's just that there's such a, a lack of jobs right now for the highest achieving people. We're speaking with Chris Chung, a former Northwest Indiana legislator, who is presently the Senior Campaign Manager for the Center for American Progress. Chris, welcome back to Northwest Indiana, at least uh, on the airwaves, and uh, great to have you here uh, joining us on Regionally Speaking. And uh, a question, I guess, that I have is, um, your work as a state representative um, for two years, 
is that a is that a topic of conversation that happened at the state house often? Uh, looking at brain drain, were people looking at you as a uh, a younger representative across the state? Maybe at the time the youngest um, in terms of what brain drain means and how to keep uh, how to keep all your friends and your family uh, sticking around in Northwest Indiana. Were those conversations being had regularly at the state house? To an extent, Tom, but I would say not nearly enough to the degree that we should be having this really serious conversation. You can imagine as being one of the very few uh, millennials in the state house. most of the other folks are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, so the topic just doesn't really appear as much in, in their front of mind and in their day-to-day. But for you know some of those folks, they see that their kids and their grandkids those folks who the, those who are just going to college and just uh, getting their foothold in the job market, they see how serious of a problem that is. But uh, yeah, to answer your question, it was not nearly a topic of conversation, uh, and it was very underreported to the extent that it, it should have been. So I'm glad we're able to talk about it today and have a really frank discussion. We like to talk about Indiana having a competitive edge as a state because of you know low taxes and a business-friendly environment. But that's not nearly enough, Tom, to keep the young workers from fleeing to big cities and finding bigger and better paychecks elsewhere. Uh, but hopefully we can turn that around in Indiana. So how often are those conversations right now being held uh, in Washington, D.C.? I mean, I know you're not at the Capitol building. Um, you're there as a private citizen. Uh, but, you know, are those regular conversations that are, are, are being held out there to figure out how to stop brain drain in Indiana and Michigan and Illinois? Uh, or are they looking at it in terms of how do we continue to get the, the best and the brightest to come out here? Yeah, I would say as little as the conversation is happening inside the state of Indiana, it's happening even less at the federal level, unfortunately. We would love to see more of our federal representatives, our Indiana members of Congress and the Senate, talking more about the need to retain the highest and, and best talent. And, you know, you can you can pivot to answers like, well, a low taxation environment brings corporations that hire young people if you're a Republican or if you're a Democrat, you talk about investing in quality of life issues. And at this point, it, I think the situation is so dire and desperate, Tom, that it needs to be an all of the above solution. We need to be talking about every single arrow in our quiver that can bring back these young people to Indiana or else we're just simply going to lose our competitive edge. And at the federal level, I think some of the recent massive investments by Congress, you know, finally passing some legislation, uh, for once, it's a pretty rare phenomenon, but there's been a slew of new federal investments in the Chips and Science Act for innovation, uh, and that Todd Young helped lead, of course, uh, and then also the infrastructure bill and then the Inflation Reduction Act, importantly. When you look closely at the provisions in the in those uh, legislations that are uh, geared towards helping uh, businesses thrive and entrepreneurship thrive, that's really where, uh, if the execution goes right, we can stem some of that brain drain in Indiana, is my hope. Hey, Chris, so let's look at post-secondary education in correlation to brain drain for a moment, right? So as I alluded to in the opening, recently the Indiana Chamber of Commerce released a report that states that only 29% of 18-year-old Hoosiers will finish college and stay in the state. And of that, more than 60,000 post-secondary graduates in Indiana, nearly 40%, will leave within one year of graduation and over half within five years. To me, that's a staggering number of community members to lose that could go toward addressing the state's talent shortages. What do you say? I, I would absolutely agree, and I think the solution needs to be kind of twofold, and both uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, have, some, have some good points to this argument that they bring up. First of all, college is way too expensive at this point, and to, to your attrition uh, statistics that you bring up, the, a big part of that is that they simply can't afford this high cost burden and be digging themselves into debt when the economy gets more and more uncertain and when uh, global competition uh, for talent becomes uh, more and more more flattened across uh, across the world internationally. So there's that component on the cost side, uh, and the and then there's the component that you know we have to have a serious conversation about uh, which folks should be going to consider higher education, uh, post secondary education. Which folks should be going into the trades because we have shortages of uh, trades folks and, and union jobs uh, that pay very well. You know they can be um, pretty tough jobs, but you don't need to saddle yourselves with debt all the time. Uh, and it doesn't, not everybody needs to go into the professional managerial class. It would be great if everyone could, because, you know, all these young folks like myself would be making six figures pretty easily. And I think our economy would be doing well. 
But the reality is that there needs to be a, a balanced approach to this. So hopefully, I, I would hope that the Indiana Chamber of Commerce would want to work with some of the organized labor unions in the state to build up these apprenticeship programs, to build up these made in America type of jobs that, that we've lost over the years. But at the same time, bending the cost curve so that you don't have to you know, ask your parents to take on $250,000 worth of debt to bring to, to get you into college and, and, um, and post-secondary education. So it's going to take a, a bipartisan solution and common sense from both sides. I'm Dee Dodson, and he's Tom Maloney, and we're speaking with Chris Chung, a former Northwest Indiana legislator who is presently the senior campaign manager for the Center for American Progress. So on that topic of uh, higher education, we have some pretty fantastic universities, not only here in Indiana, but across the Midwest. I mean, we're, we are riddled with Big Ten schools, Indiana uh, University, Purdue University. Of course, we've got Northwestern over in Chicago. We've got the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. We've got Michigan and Michigan State. We've got Wisconsin. Um, we've got Minnesota and Iowa. And taking, you know, maybe a, a tier down from the Big Ten, obviously we've got, uh, we've got, we've got Ball State, we've got uh, Valparaiso uh, University right here in our own backyard, and we, we've got great local universities with Purdue Northwest, IUN, uh, a whole host of other universities just over the state line in, um, in Chicago. There's a lot of opportunity for higher education. So why is it that kids are getting these degrees in these places that they've grown up, you know, whether they're getting the uh, the full ride, whether they're getting any sort of scholarship help or they're they're paying their own uh, way with all the opportunity for higher education? Why aren't kids staying? Is it the workforce? Is it the weather? Is it just not wanting to, you know, go back home with mom and dad? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Tom. And I'll say that we shouldn't try to blame it on the weather is one thing. You've got states like Minnesota and that are much colder than ours, uh, but they're growing like crazy because the healthcare industry up there in the Twin Cities is, is going, uh, is really growing at a rapid clip. So to your point, I think it has to be a, an, again, a, an, a all of the above solution that addresses number one, cost of some of these institutions. Yes, you mentioned that a lot of folks can get in-state tuition. And Purdue, under Mitch Daniels' leadership, has uh, trying to have been uh, bucking the trend of raising tuition costs by keeping them flat, at least, in an inflationary environment and even prior to this uh, period of high inflation that we're experiencing. So that's a good step. But still, a lot of the time, that shuts out tons of folks from marginalized communities. And if you're from a low-income background, uh, you're still going to be shut out from the support network that you need to actually succeed at a school like Purdue or at IU Bloomington or Notre Dame. And then the second part of that is not only... uh, The first part is bending the cost curve. And then the second part of that is making the quality of life and uh, small business opportunities that... uh, kids need to be able to see themselves um, executing on in Indiana. You know, there's, we make fun of Northern Indiana a lot of times. It's very flat, you know, it's very agrarian. It can be very homogenous sometimes, and it can be an easy punching bag. But for me, at least personally, this will always be my home, and I, and I want to invest in it. And that kind of makes me uh, tied to the region. And, and still, even when I'm far away, I read the uh, local media, and I, I listen to Lakeshore Public Radio because I want to know what's going on in my hometown. Not everyone's like that. But once we help build this quality of life around uh, investments that help walkability and urbanizing some of the uh, de-invested parts of uh, Northern Lake County and of uh, LaPorte County, especially capitalizing on our lakeshore, getting rid of some of the pollution and some of the industrial waste and creating great nature assets that people can enjoy, creating great healthcare institutions. I mean, we've already got a few and we're we're steadily climbing up there, but we've still got a long way to go to compete with uh, a Notre Dame graduate who might get a $200,000 job offer to work on Wall Street or someone to, who's going to make that much doing software engineering in Silicon Valley. We've got to really make sure that as Indiana can, goes, we need to be competitive with uh, those coasts and attract venture capital investment, attract big business and small business as well. So again, it all comes down to an all of the above approach at, my, at this point, in my opinion. 
Well, we, we do have the third coast here, right? We've got uh, the five Great right. Lakes, and we, we do have that proximity to Chicago, uh, along with the opportunity, uh, you know, to kind of travel everywhere. The, you know, we've got, we are quite literally in the crossroads of America uh, when it comes to that. But that, that quality of life that you speak of and sort of the, you know, I, I look at it, I guess, more as a... Um, a bird's eye view and I, I look at places like Muncie and Anderson and I look you know I, I went to college in Muncie uh, my dad worked at a factory uh, in Anderson when I was a kid and uh, you know I look at places like Northwest Indiana I look at uh, I look at Gary and I look at Hammond and I look at uh, Michigan City along the lake um, I grew up in Milwaukee before Milwaukee got cool again um, I lived there for a couple of years and it was a it was a it was a rough area and you know if we look at uh, you know what Detroit has gone through over the last several years it's all of these old rust belt towns how do they you know is there some sort of a I don't know is there some sort of an organization working to try to make those towns livable and vi- viable again is it up to the the local folks to reinvest into their communities you know how do you make how do you make the kids want to stay in these old rust belt towns where you know, the only place to get Mexican food is at a Taco Bell. And, you know, the, the, the pizza is the same pizza they've been eating since the 1980s. You know, whereas you look at someplace like Chicago or you look at the Twin Cities or you, you look at the revitalization of a place like Nashville just to the south. It's a little bit warmer and it's a lot cooler and a lot hipper, right? So it's an opportunity there. I think kids are looking at that and seeing those opportunities elsewhere. How do those Rust Belt communities in not only Northwest Indiana, but the rest of the Hoosier State as well, really take a hard look in the mirror and figure out how do we how do we fix this? Yeah, we want to bring in more restaurants. Yeah, we want to bring in some art stuff, and we want to revitalize our downtown. But that costs time. That costs money. And now I'm trying to convince this you know Notre Dame grad to stick around closer to South Bend versus you know going to New York or uh, flying out to L.A. or going down to Texas. Yeah, that's right. And, and to your question, there are organizations and nonprofits and foundations and corporations who are, I think, in their own respective ways, trying to address this issue, at least in some part. Because as you're noticing now, after we've had these labor shortages uh, with the COVID pandemic wreaking havoc on the economy, it, it's become a, a, a huge issue across corporate America that they're starting to realize that this uh, labor force issue, uh, it, it comes down to cost and they've got to step up to the plate or they're simply not going to be able to have the talent. The flip side of this is that those cities that you mentioned that are growing like crazy, like in Texas and uh, Nashville, um, they're, they're suffering under an affordability crisis now and they're getting priced out under congestion and, and, and they're starting to suffer a little bit on the quality of life frame. So I don't think Indiana should necessarily try and become the next Nashville or something like that, but we should really lean in to the, uh, the the Rust Belt heritage that we have. There are more domestic investments coming from federal legislation to shore up domestic manufacturing, for instance, and onshoring some of that production. You know, we saw what happens during the COVID pandemic when supply chains all get shipped overseas and all these mega corporations are relying on just-in-time production. Really, that's a really building your economy on a house of cards because if there's one crisis, whether that's railroads being shut down or whether that's China being shut down, you're, you lose a huge portion of that raw material that you need to make things and build things in America. So number one, we should be onshoring production. Number two, the foundations and corporations and nonprofits that are trying in their own small ways to address the, the brain drain issue really need to ban together and create a unified plan for the state of Indiana. And it's going to take some odd bedfellows, Tom, in my opinion, working at the same table to get serious about attracting talent. I'm talking like you're going to get the Chamber of Commerce on one side, and then on the other side, you're going to get organized labor to uh, come together with them with a solution. And likewise, the Chamber needs to uh, listen to organized labor. And you've got to get the school system, the public and private schools talking to one another and saying, you know, what can we do? Can we give grants? to help uh, young entrepreneurs build downtowns and make them more walkable? Should we find ways to build out mass transit because we find that millennials don't want to own cars? They don't want to live in sleepy suburbs like their uh, uh, boomer parents. They want to live in a dynamic urban core. And increasingly, those boomer parents, as they're becoming empty nesters, also want to live in an urban core and don't want to have to drive everywhere. Uh, so there's there's a lot that can be done, and I think um, the building the built environment and helping onshore some of that production uh, are some small w- and giving g- uh, competitive grants to some of these new uh, graduates to start businesses and stay in Indiana can really go a long way in helping. But again, we're going to have to see what the next few years brings. 
So, Chris, we have spoken in, in great detail about the correlation between education and Indiana's brain drain. But let's look at some of the other reasons for the brain drain. So when news broke out of Indiana's near total ban of abortions, women expressed concern. And that concern could again lead to brain drain. You were once a Democratic member of the Indiana House of Representatives. So what are your thoughts on public policy on Indiana's brain drain? Yeah, well, as you can imagine, Dee, coming from uh, my perspective, my view is simply that some of those laws that have been passed after the overturning of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, some of these state laws like Indiana's have just been too extreme. That's just plain and simple. It's my opinion. Uh, And, you know, take it or leave it. If you're a Republican or Democrat, uh, feel free to disagree with me. But the reality is that corporate America is noticing And I think the results of the last midterm election not being as dire for the Democratic Party as was predicted, Roe versus uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and then the subsequent passage of restrictive state abortion laws like that of Indiana are should really be a wake up call for uh, policymakers across the country that if you want to attract talent, you're going to have to start listening to people and you can't be pushing an ideologue agenda. You have to be pushing policies that appeal to the broad 50% plus one, not this liver, this faction of 10 or 15% of the most vocal, most strident, most activist and ideological uh, members of a faction of, of any constituency. So public policy is going to play a serious role and not just on abortion, but also the environment, on guns, on public safety, on taxation. You're going to have to come to more consensus solutions or you're simply put, you're going to be driving millennials and young talent away to different states, period. Chris, uh, before we let you go, I want to thank you for your time today here on Regionally Speaking. But uh, one last question for you. Um, You are a former state representative. And uh, as much as I I love talking with you about things, uh, is there an opportunity for uh, my news team to be reporting on you as a candidate in the the future? No pressure. no, uh, No need to break the news now. But just, you know, wondering between you and I, between you and I. And I. I appreciate that, Tom and Dee. I, that, that's that's really humbling. And, you know, I love public service, and it was probably my favorite uh, and my most favorite learning experience, quite honestly. At this time, I'm really focused on uh, doing the public policy work that uh, I'm doing at the Center for American Progress, while at the same time fighting for Indiana's future. And, and you know, right now, I'm not really itching to get back into uh, political service or, or running another campaign. It's a very stressful and uh, very, uh, it takes a lot of time away from uh, my family and spending time with my friends and uh, my personal life as well. So not at this time, I'll, I'll say, but uh, you know, I like I said, I do love Indiana, and I'd love to keep my finger on the pulse and help support those uh, public leaders and officials who are going to be doing the right thing for the state and addressing the problems we talked about today. I don't think I've ever heard a politician or a former politician uh, say that uh, being in political office was their favorite learning experience, but there's a first time for everything, <laughs> even here on Regionally Speaking. Uh, Chris, next time you're in the region, drop by the studios. We'd love to have you in the building. Chris Chung, the former state representative here in northwest indiana for what district again 15 district 15 and uh not running for office anytime soon but uh, nonetheless uh, a fantastic conversation and discussion about brain drain higher education and the future outlook of northwest indiana and the midwest chris thank you so much for joining us here on regionally speaking Thank you so much, Tom, and thank you so much, Dee. I appreciate it. The holidays are upon us, a time of great celebration, but even greater preparation. But just around the corner is the 2023 Indiana Legislative Session, and in her latest column, Preparing for the Season, Tammy Silverman, the president and CEO of the Indiana Youth Institute, says that we should also be preparing for that as well. Tammy, as always, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Always my pleasure to be with you. Okay, Tammy, so we're all buzzing with excitement as the holidays approach, but you share in your latest column, Preparing for the Season, that all Hoosiers should prepare for another season, if you will, and that's the 2023 Indiana Legislative Session, which is just around the corner. So if you will, take a moment to tell us some of the issues you hope will be discussed during this upcoming session. Right. Well, and this year's a budget session, right? So we know that, that this is where we get funds allocated for the next two years, essentially. So it's really important that we're prepping and thinking ahead. So some of the, the three big issues that, that we're focused on this year going into the legislative session is early literacy, mental health, and post-secondary completion. There's a lot of good information and data on each of those 
to say that if we can lean in a little bit more, the need is there and certainly then the the benefits for our kids, if we do lean in, um, are going to be really worthwhile. So those are the three big buckets that we're, that we're highlighting this year. I know others will come up as we work through session, but early literacy, mental health, and post-secondary completion. So you share that there have been clear gaps in opportunities and achievement for Indiana youth for years. Do you think legislators have the chance to make real changes for Indiana youth? They certainly can. They certainly can. And we know that many of them are interested in doing so because many of them ask us for the data and the information. So again, that's where we want to make sure that we're continually talking about how are we investing in all of our kids, particularly those kids that have faced uh, historic or systemic barriers. And so really looking at disaggregated data to make sure that that those elected officials have the information they need to to make those beneficial allocations or, you know, to, to update introduce some bills that will help our kids. The Indiana Chamber of Commerce recently released a report called Indiana's Leaking Talent Pipeline. And in the report, it concluded that Indiana needs to lift up the educational attainments and workforce skills of its citizenry. And in your latest column, you highlight post-secondary completion data, including the fact that Indiana's college enrollment rates are at a 10-year low, yet job growth in the state is projected to be strongest in areas requiring a post-secondary degree. So tell us about programs like 21st Century Scholars that help get members to and through college, yet the enrollment rates are low. Yes, well, we know that um, the highest demand, actually, and this was fascinating because this was new information, even for us, the highest demand area will be with individuals that hold master's degrees. And there's a 13.1% projected growth demand for that, followed by associate's degree, followed by bachelor's degree. So, so again, the question becomes, how do we ensure that all of our bright young people have the opportunity to obtain those degrees? And so, as you said, 21st Century Scholars is that program that our state has, which is a terrific program that offers enrolled students up to 100% of coverage for tuition for two or four-year degrees in Indiana colleges or universities. And so, we need to make sure that every eligible student is aware of what it takes to get enrolled, and we help them to get enrolled. Now, it's my understanding that many of us are talking about the benefits of what what would benefit our kids if there was auto-enrollment. So I know that that's going to be a discussion that's going to be uh, haggled out over the next next few months, but also thinking about at the end of you know, what's the, what's the aspiration we're going for? And again, it's to make sure that our students get as much education as they need to fulfill their goals. And simultaneously, um, we need to make sure that our workforce has, has, the, has the talent that's prepared to come and be the leaders of tomorrow. So we're discussing the upcoming legislative session as it relates to issues for young people. And we can't help ignore the fact that voter turnout is low among 18 to 24-year-olds but you challenge youth workers to make room for our youth to engage in the progress. Now, we here at Lakeshore Public Radio spend time doing extensive coverage each election cycle on everything from voter registration to actual voter turnout, but you offer that the attention should be spent elsewhere. Can you share with our listening audience where the focus should be? Well, and we love, we love voter engagement, voter turnout. Let me say that first and foremost, but that's not the only thing that goes into civic engagement. So as we're heading into this legislative session, that's also part of civic engagement. That's also what builds this sense of community and ownership in our, in our democratic process. So we're saying, you know, of course, we, we do want folks to vote, but also make sure that they're paying attention to the legislative session. Make sure that we're having conversations um, with students about listening to various viewpoints, to um, seeking common ground with folks that might have a political difference from your own, understanding what, and managing our own preconceptions, engaging in those really robust debates that often come along with legislative sessions while remaining respectful and not attacking another person, person's character or, or individuality. Some of that is that we need to be modeling and helping young people learn how to do that. I mean, some folks will make the case that, that adults, we need some work in that area too. But again, we're focused on, on supporting and modeling and um, preparing our young people to be to be future leaders. And finally, Tammy, piggybacking on what you just alluded to, in your article, you address a need to restore civility. And it seems like no matter when you tune into NPR, sadly you'll hear a story about differing opinions on everything from politics to religion that cause a great public spectacle. 
So tell us why you highlight civility in your column. Right, right. And so many people say that they want a return to civility, you know, and that they want to be able to, and, and you know, interact and have those robust debates. And actually, a lot of folks are closer together on many things than, than not. And so, again, training, teaching, modeling, supporting, and, and probably first and foremost, allowing kids to be part of that. And so, you know, again, one of the things that's really important to understand about civility, it's not saying that you have to agree entirely with with everyone or with someone who, who disagrees with you. And it also doesn't say you need to compromise your values. Instead, it says reasonable people can hold differing perspectives. And we need to honor that by, by, again, having those difficult conversations and leaning in when there is disagreement rather than kind of you know, going back into our own echo chambers, which which is easier and sometimes feels good because it validates your own opinions, but really doesn't challenge us to come together. Tammy Silverman is the president and CEO of the Indiana Youth Institute. Tammy, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Always my pleasure. Thank you so much, Dee. For more information about the Indiana Youth Institute, you can visit www.iyi.org. November is National Family Caregivers Month as well as National Alzheimer's Awareness Month. The Alzheimer's Association Greater Indiana Chapter provides services in 73 Indiana counties. Indiana is home to 110,000 Hoosiers living with Alzheimer's disease and 216,000 unpaid Indiana caregivers. The organization's mission is to eliminate Alzheimer's disease through the advancement of research to provide and enhance care and support for all affected and to reduce the risk of dementia through the promotion of brain health. So we turn now to Julie Collins, Northwest Indiana Program Manager with the Alzheimer's Association Greater Indiana Chapter to talk about the resources that are available to help community members affected by the disease. Julie, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you for having me, Dee. Julie, if you will, give us a bit of the history of the Alzheimer's Association. The Alzheimer's Association has been around a number of years, and it was created to, to ensure that we are providing support to all of our communities across the country. We um, offer research opportunities for anyone interested in partaking and advocacy, um, and we also do fundraising. So as I shared in my opening, the month of November is dedicated to raising awareness of Alzheimer's disease. So if you will, share what the organization does for community members right here in Northwest Indiana living with dementia or Alzheimer's. Absolutely. So we like to make sure that all of our communities know that there are a number of resources available. We provide education, including the 10 warning signs of Alzheimer's, effective communication strategies, managing money programs. And we do this in any organization that would be interested in learning more, including churches, libraries, civic organizations. And we also provide support groups. We believe that supporting our caregivers is vital to their health, the health of their loved ones. And our support groups, we have four that take place in Northwest Indiana currently. Our latest that we just added is in Gary, Indiana at St. Timothy's. And we have one in Michigan City, in Valparaiso, as well as Dyer. And those are just a few of the things we do. And our helpline is available 24-7. And can you call their helpline? Do you know anything about it? No, no. Okay. So sure. our helpline can be reached by calling one 800 272-3900. And this is actually where you can learn about where our programs are taking place. And you can also register our support groups by calling. Again, that's 800-272-3900. And you can call for any reason. Let's say your loved one just got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. You walk out of the doctor's office, you're feeling very overwhelmed. You're not sure where to go. You can call the Alzheimer's Association and there's never a charge and we'll be there to help. And we have master's level clinicians waiting for your call, and they can kind of walk you through the first steps of what you need to do to help you with the diagnosis and what needs to be done next. Everything from talking to an elder law attorney, care planning, deciding what will happen in your loved one's journey, and then 
you can also call. Sometimes people with dementia don't love to take showers, so you can even call and say, my mom hasn't taken a shower in a week. I'm not sure what to do. How do I get her to take a shower? And our professionals can give advice on that. So truly, any question you have relating to Alzheimer's or dementia, or if you're just a community member who's heard a little bit about it and wants more information, feel free to call. That's what we're here for. And we want to make sure that um, you don't feel like you're walking journey alone because it could be very isolating and difficult. We're speaking with Julie Collins, Northwest Indiana Program Manager with the Alzheimer's Association, Greater Indiana Chapter. Julie, I'm so glad that you shared the information about the resources that are available because let's be real, caregiving, while it is essential, it can become very exhausting, both emotionally as well as physically and financially for community members. So let's just shift for a moment, Julie, if it's okay with you. Given the current trajectory of the disease, the number of Americans living with Alzheimer's is expected to double by 2050. And looking at disparities in health for a moment, I saw recent data that revealed that people of color are twice is like to develop the disease and that women account for two-thirds of all people living with Alzheimer's. So what is the organization doing to help bridge the gap for community members here in Northwest Indiana to gain access to health care providers to be tested? And what about Alzheimer's awareness within the community as well? Thank you for asking that question. That's very important to us that all communities in the Hispanic community 1.5 times more likely. And this is really unacceptable. So number one, we need to make sure people feel comfortable going to their physicians. So you do need, if you're having symptoms, um, you can go to our website, ALD.org, and you can learn about the signs and symptoms, the 10 warning signs of Alzheimer's. And once you know those, if you're having some of those symptoms and you're just uncomfortable with what you're feeling, and but again, if you're not comfortable going to the doctor, it's important to take that first step. And I always recommend people write down what they're feeling. Take a, make a little journal or a notebook and maybe that'll, you know, help you feel a little more comfortable. And once you get to the doctor, if you don't feel like they're listening, just say, you know, I'm really having trouble. What what can I do to, you know, be tested? What can I do to make sure I don't have Alzheimer's disease? Um, and we also like to do education within the communities. We work with churches. Um, we have a relationship with AME churches. And Again, education programs are available. We love to do education programs in the black communities, Hispanic communities, and we also offer programs in Spanish. And I did want to mention, Dee, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. our helpline always has a Spanish-speaking person available, and we translate over 200 languages. So we definitely try to reach all communities. And one problem we know exists is um, with this disparity, we don't have enough research on diverse communities to truly know um, the reasons why, you know, they're suffering from Alzheimer's at a great greater number. And so we have um, trialmatch.org is a place you can go to learn about enrolling in a study. So we take healthy brains, not healthy brains, and um, you can sign up. So if a study becomes available that you might sit with, um, we would love that. And it's not always a study about medication. There might always be a also be a study just about cognitive abilities. So, and we always tell people, if you're uncomfortable with the history of the black community and um, research, we just like people to know, if you decide to join a study, we encourage you, if you're uncomfortable at any point, to leave the study, you know, or talk to the researchers. That's very important. So, um, and again, with our latest support group in Gary, we, um, we hope to reach the black community. Um, we encourage everyone to come out who feels like they might need help. And we do work with different organizations in the community to make sure that, um, again, all communities are being reached. Because if people don't know these resources are available, um, then they certainly can't reach out for the help that they might need and benefit from. That's great. And I think that it is important that you did share regarding the research that's being done, particularly for people of color, the importance of you sharing that if at any point that community members are uncomfortable or feel unsafe or just don't want to participate in the research anymore, that they have that ability to excuse themselves. And given the history, given the fear, given all of that, that's great for community members to hear that. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And again, we need more research. There are things, you know, if there are things that go along with having Alzheimer's sometimes if you like are, you know, just, you know, our latest research shows when 
have a little bit of a risk, there are certain things that might help reduce the possibility of getting it, and that could include exercise, eating well, and sleeping, getting enough sleep. So those are things we encourage everyone to do, simple things that might change, you know, when you get Alzheimer's or if you get Alzheimer's. So again, more research is being done on that. But again, eating well, exercising, and getting enough sleep. Those might be very helpful. So Julie, during National Family Caregivers and National Alzheimer's Disease Awareness Month, the Alzheimer's Association is highlighting six essential terms that are important for Alzheimer's and dementia caregivers to know. Can you share what a few of those need-to-knows are? My favorite is to know that we don't want anyone to be afraid to reach out for help. Reaching out for help is probably the biggest step you'll ever take because I don't know about you, but for me, I'm a person, it's, it is hard to reach out for help, but if you don't reach out for help, you won't be able to get it. So talking to someone, going to a support group, and again, going to the support group is sometimes difficult to take that first step. So I encourage people, again, to call the helpline 1-800-272-3900. Find out where their support groups are because that might be a great place where you can share your experiences, your feelings, because often people feel so socially isolated that they don't have anyone to talk to and it just builds, the stress builds and it becomes more difficult each day to deal with it and sometimes caregivers end up sick and we want to make sure our caregivers are feeling appreciated, loved, and that they have a place to go for safety and, you know, a safe place to talk as well. Again, getting the educational programs, that might help a little bit as well. And finally, how can community members gain access to more resources available through the Alzheimer's Association? I mean, you've shared so much regarding support groups, regarding gaining access to research. You provide contact information for members of the community to reach Alzheimer's Association, or even if they wanted to just speak to you directly. Could you provide that contact information? Of course, yes. Our helpline is 1-800-272-3900. And it is available 24-7. We never close. And um, I do work in Northwest Indiana. And if you'd like to contact me directly, my number is 219-472-1451. And my email is jccollins at alz.org. And you can visit our website anytime as well. And that is www.alz.org. And I did want to mention we have a wonderful resource called the Community Resource Finder, and that's fueled by AARP as well as the Alzheimer's Association. And that can be found at alz.org slash crf. And if you're looking for resources to help you on the journey, you can go to the Community Resource Finder, and here you will be able to put your zip code in and the service you're looking for. So if you're looking for an elder law attorney, home health care, transportation, a neurologist. So you can go there and find someone in your local area, a provider, and that might help make the journey easier as well. And Dee, I did want to mention with the holidays coming up, um, I hope all caregivers will take a break, ask for help. I think asking for help and being able to step out of their home for a few minutes, you're the primary caregiver. That's one of the things we always encourage people to do is, um, Get someone to come in, even if it's just a few hours a week, so you can go out and get your hair done or go to the grocery store. Because with Alzheimer's, caring for someone with Alzheimer's can be more difficult than um, other diseases just because the caregiver doesn't really get that chance to turn their brain off and just take a break because they're always worried if their loved one's going to roam, um, if they're going to become confused. So just being able to decompress for a minute, even if you don't know you need it, Once you do it, you might realize that it was the healthiest thing you could do for yourself because you just need that minute to, you know, reset your brain and have a break so you can just take a breath. Um, And sometimes that's, you know, sometimes you might not think a caregiver will do um, a job as good as you're doing, but I can assure you if you feel comfortable, you get the right person, interview interview them, taking that step and just leaving your loved one for a few minutes or a few hours will be um, a very healthy thing for you to do. Julie Collins is the Northwest Indiana Program Manager for the Alzheimer's Association, Greater Indiana Chapter. Julie, thank you for spending time with us. 
sharing information about your organization or Regionally Speaking. Thank you so much, Steve, for the opportunity. And in addition to all of the information shared in our interview, the Alzheimer's Association wanted to be sure to share the 10 absolutes, which the organization finds one of their most helpful pieces of information for day-to-day caregiver stress. Number one, never argue, instead agree. Number two, never reason, instead divert. Number three, never shame, instead distract. Number four, never lecture, instead reassure. Number five, never say remember, instead reminisce. Number six, never say I told you, instead repeat. Number seven, never say you can't, instead say do what you can. Number eight, never demand or command, instead ask or model. Number nine, never condescend, Instead, encourage or praise. And finally, number 10, never force. Instead, reinforce. And again, for more information on the Alzheimer's Association, you can visit www.alz.org. If you're planning to retire one day, it's no surprise that living on a fixed income is not just a game changer, it's a life changer. Bankrate came out with its annual list that shares the best and worst states to retire in, and the list was based on several factors. And one of those factors was affordability. Are you curious where Indiana landed on Bankrate's list? Well, it ranks number 12 in affordability. While Indiana is one of the more affordable states to retire in, most financial advisors will tell you that there are many other considerations to plan for in retirement, such as health care, taxes, and hard to believe, more inflation. Since the fear of outliving your money is the most common concern among retirees, how can you take the steps needed to ensure, to ensure you save enough to live comfortably in our beautiful state? Northwest Indiana Financial Advisor Greg Hammer is here with five strategies that Indiana residents can take to help secure their financial future. Greg, as always, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thanks for having me, Andy. Okay, Greg. So the first strategy you say is to plan for how much you're going to spend in retirement. So how does one go about doing that? Well, estimating expenses, especially for retirement, can be difficult because, you know, there are some variables. Nobody knows what health care is going to cost, you know, what inflation is going to do what taxes will be in the future, not to mention, you know, longevity. So it's not uncommon, you know, for individuals to underestimate how much money they will need for retirement. But a a quick rough estimate is to look at 75% of your income when you're employed. And, you know, that's the net dollars we always like to look at. And using that as a starting point, I always like to tell people, you know, think about lifestyle need. You know, everyone's situation is different. So you must factor in things that are going to be more relevant relative to you. You know, will the mortgage end? That's an expense you can you know eliminate potentially from what you need. Are you still making payments? Um, do you ever like to spend a time traveling? You know, going visiting children, grandchildren. You're going to have more time in your hands. So, what types of hobbies might incur additional expenses, and what types of expenses would go down, like commuting expenses and things of that nature? And you know, will you continue to? Um, do the things in retirement that you're doing currently. So to get the best estimate um, on how much money you'll need, you just need to to consider all of these factors and and don't fall into the trap of just looking at a budget because a budget will, you know, give you your foundational expenses. But really, what is it else that I want to do? You know, what are the things that you know make up my lifestyle and and try to get a, as accurate as estimate as possible and factor in you know all the things that we just talked about. So the second strategy is to max out contributions to your tax-favored retirement account. Now, you've mentioned this before on Regionally Speaking, but why is it so important right now? Well, right now you have uh, the opportunity to capitalize on any room you have left. We're coming near the end of the year. And it's always uh, just a great reminder as you finish up 2022, you know, have I maxed out everything I could by the December 31st deadline? For example, the 401ks. You know, if you're under 50, you're allowed to contribute up to 20500 But if you're over 50, you have a, a catch-up pr- uh, provision, and you can add an additional uh, 6500 in contributions if you want. And similar, any Roth IRAs or traditional IRAs that you're contributing to or maybe have an opportunity to contribute to, um, you can 
you know, capitalize on that $6,000 amount. And again, for people over 50, you know, that additional thousand catch up. So utilizing those opportunities as you get into next year, then again, you, you fall into the new cap. So whatever you can get in, could be potentially more dollars that you're able to save for yourself for the future. The third strategy on your list is to make the most of your time horizon. But what is a time horizon? So pretty simple, pretty straightforward deal. Like it indicates it's, you know, what is the amount of time before I retire? When, you know, what are the amount of years between now and that date that I'll start drawing from investments? And then, you know, what are the purpose of my assets and how long are they going to be invested? So it's important to understand that time horizon because the longer the time horizon you have, um, the more predictable results will be um, in the more volatile investments. So, you know, we anticipate volatility all the time, even before this year. Historically, you know, markets swing. Stocks, you know, have outperformed other securities like bonds over time. And so the longer the time horizon, uh, the more predictable the result and generally, you know, the higher tolerance you might um, have because you're not in retirement and you're not using those assets currently in the drawdown or distribution phase, as we call it. The fourth strategy is to strike a balance between your investment goals and risk tolerance. How do you balance this? Well, one is, you know, everybody's going to have a risk tolerance and you just got to understand what that is. You know, regardless of what the playbook might say, right? If we're not going to stomach volatility and it's going to keep us awake at night and then we end up making emotional decisions and pulling money out when it's down, that's counterproductive to the overall plan. But if you kind of create a balance between what your objectives are and we kind of use the terminology of like segmenting assets for purpose, you know, if we need money sooner, those assets should not be subject to the same volatility that, you know, we're using for potential uh, investments for later to to combat like inflation and and expenses that will continue to increase. So purposing those assets, you know, um, understanding what the objective of those assets are and and, and creating a better um, balance between what your goals are and risk, um, considering, you know, what, what, when you need them and what they're going to be used for. Okay, Greg, so the fifth strategy is to reduce your retirement expenses. In the few minutes that we have left, can you take a moment to tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people look at it, you know, just like on the surface, oh, yeah, you know, reduce costs, reduce spending. A lot of the things you can do are just strategies in the, in the planning aspect. You know, putting money into a Roth IRA, for example, given the current tax laws, could reduce your tax expense in the future. You know, having money purposed for battling inflation and growing a little faster can help combat the expense of inflation. You know, planning for things using like HSAs to um, have money available for increased medical expenses. So looking at how to lower expenses, a lot of times it's just how the overall plan is going to uh, address those concerns and then minimizing some of the, the sequence risk the tax risk, the inflation risk are all expenses that could be controlled to a degree or at least planned for in that process um, so that they don't have as big an impact on you in retirement. Wow, Greg, you shared a lot today. And I want to thank you once again for always joining us on Reasonably Speaking, sharing tips and tools on how we can all prepare for retirement. Thanks for having me, Andy. And that's it for Regionally Speaking for this week and this year. Thanks to all of our guests that joined us in 2022. And stay tuned in 2023 for all of the stories and voices of the region.